A reading from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. Well, what is he doing here then? He's writing to them about the times and the seasons. Oh, Paul. Anyways, he continues, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then all of a sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. Wow. Um, Anyways, he continues, but you, beloved, are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. Wait, you are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as other people do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. Well, unless you live in Wisconsin. He continues, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Yeah, so uh, who else wants to preach today? Anyone? Please? (laughs) Anyone at all? Okay, yeah, I see how it is. And I don't blame you for not wanting to preach today. I mean, these are the passages that we're supposed to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Are you freaking kidding me? Our reading from Judges starts off with God selling his own people into slavery where they are oppressed by 900 chariots of iron for 20 years. The word of the Lord? Thanks be to God? And then Jesus tells a lovely story about a boss who throws his own employee into hell. Why? Because that employee didn't open a money market savings account for him. That's why. And then there's Paul talking about some pretty end timesy sounding stuff, right? The coming wrath, the day of the Lord, mass destruction, fun for the whole family. <laughs> My friends, what are we to do with scripture readings like these? We are to hear read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That's what our tradition invites us to do. And I confess myself that when I first saw these passages earlier in the week, when I was prepping for the sermon, I was like, yeah, how many vacation days do I have left this year? Because this would be the perfect weekend to take my family to the Wisconsin Dells, right? (laughs) But after spending some time 
meditating on these readings for this week, especially on our passage from Paul, I'm now convinced that this just might be the most relevant stuff that we've heard all year long. At the very end of our epistle reading, Paul instructs the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica to encourage one another and to build each other up. Encourage one another, build each other up. Why? Like what's getting ready to happen that they're going to need each other now more than ever? What's getting ready to take place that they're going to need all of the encouragement and the edification that they can get? Folks, I don't care what the TV preachers say, literally any of them. (laughs) This passage in Paul is not. It's not about the end of the world or the end times. It's not about the second coming of Christ, at least not in the way that we tend to think about the second coming of Christ. And if Paul's words sound somewhat familiar to us this morning, as if we've heard them somewhere else before, it's because we have. Paul is paraphrasing Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24 here. Now, what's the theme of Matthew chapter 24, you ask? Great question. I'm really glad that you asked it. Matthew 24 is all about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of organized and institutional and national religion as the Hebrew people knew it. And I'm sure you remember parts of the story from Matthew 24, Jesus is walking around with his disciples on the temple grounds. And the disciples, they're awestruck at the sight of the buildings, and they cry out, Ooh, Master, what pretty buildings! But Jesus utters these prophetic words to them. Oh, you see these buildings, these beautiful buildings. Yeah, not one stone will be left atop another. This whole temple will be reduced to rubble. My friends, we know that at some point in his life, Jesus had a vision where he actually saw the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And this vision was written down by a guy named John in a book that's now known to us as the Book of Revelation. And again, I don't care what the TV preacher says, the Book of Revelation is not, is not about the end of the world. The book of Revelation is entirely about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD, Jesus' mystical vision of the future. I mean, the opening line of the book of Revelation is this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, not John, him, to show his servants what must soon take place. And the destruction of the temple was the thing that was soon to take place. And somewhere around 20 years or so before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire, Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians, reminding them of Jesus's prophetic words, Jesus's prophetic mystical vision. The destruction of the temple would come like a thief in the night. Therefore, Hebrew Christians everywhere should stay awake. Paul says. Now, even though droves and droves of Hebrew people at the time believed that their beloved temple had been completely corrupted 
by the imperial politics of the Roman Empire, so much so that the books of Enoch actually accused the high priests of offering polluted sacrifices on the altar, and so much so that Jesus actually says this morning that what little these priests had been entrusted with, all of it would be taken away from them. That's the meaning of the gospel, by the way. Still, with all of this in the backdrop, right, the background, the idea of the temple being destroyed, that was no small thing in the Hebrew mind. It was a catastrophic, earth-shattering thing because the temple was the staple not only of the Hebrew religion, but it was the thing that held all political life and national identity together as well. So think about it. The questions that these earliest Hebrew Christians were forced to grapple with were questions like these. What are God's people to do when the religion they grow up in has been co-opted by imperial politics? When those in charge don't represent our best interests or our religion's best interests, but the interests of corrupt politicians. What are God's people to do when institutional and organized religion as we know it has disgusted the vast majority of the people around us and as a consequence, institutional religion is in a nosedive? What are God's people to do when the threat of losing our beloved building, our beloved place of prayer, becomes a very real threat? What are God's people to do when tensions are high, when there are wars and rumors of war, when national stability is on the brink of collapsing, and when the nation is deeply divided? What are God's people to do when totalitarianism looks like it might win the day, robbing us of our traditional way of life and our values and our cultural identity? What are God's people to do when so many of our brothers and sisters have completely sold themselves out to Caesar? What are God's people to do in the face of so much instability, division, and uncertainty? We are to encourage one another and build each other up, St. Paul says. But there's more to St. Paul's words here than meets the eye encourage one another, and build each other up. I read these words of Paul in the Greek for the very first time this week, and it actually gave me goosebumps, because there's a nuance that's lost in translation here. Encourage one another, and I'll do my best to pronounce this, it's probably wrong, but it'll be close enough. Dio periclate alelus. Do you recognize any of those words? Dio, periclete, alelus. I recognize Dio just because Dio was an awesome rock star. But anyways, <laughs> the other one is periclete. Paul's literally saying, therefore, periclete one another. Remind me again, who's called the periclete in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. Periclete, as I'm sure you know, means comforter, encourager. But Paul isn't saying, be like the Holy Spirit and comfort and encourage each other. No, no, he's literally saying, be 
the presence of the Holy Spirit to one another. Embody the presence of the Holy Spirit. Be the presence of the Comforter, the presence of the Divine Encourager to one another. It's pretty radical stuff, folks. In other words, what Paul is saying is that as the temple falls, as institutional religion as we know it crumbles, as organized religion fails, as national stability continues to collapse, as chaos ensues, you, you become the temple of God to each other. You, yes, you become the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit to each other. This is how you are to encourage one another. And Paul says to build each other up. The Greek word for build here, it's the same word that would be used when it comes to talking about the construction of a temple building. So really the best way to translate this verse is therefore be the temple of God to each other and build each other up into the temple of God. This is what Paul means when he uses the words encourage and build up. That's what he's getting at. Now, the obvious question to ask ourselves this morning is this, like, how do we do this? How do we encourage one another by being the temple of God to each other? How do we build each other up into the temple of God? Well, it's Paul's last few words in the sentence and this whole reading this morning that actually answer this question. Paul says, therefore, Encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. Now, I must confess that the last part of that sentence, it just drove me absolutely freaking nuts (laughs) all week long. Because at first I was like, come on, Paul. Like, come on, guy. If the Thessalonians are already encouraging one another and building each other up, then why tell them to encourage one another and build each other up? Like, why not just pat them on the back and give them an attaboy? Like, why instruct them to do the thing that they're already doing, right? But then I got it. These people had absolutely no idea that they already were the temple of God to each other. They had no idea the extent to which they already were building each other up. They had no idea just how much they already were radiating the glory of the Holy Spirit. No idea just how much they already were Christ's very presence, his hands and his feet in this world. My friends, just a reminder, union with God is not something that you can acquire. A relationship with God is not something that you can ever enter into. Why? Because you can't acquire something that you already have. (laughs) And you can't enter into a relationship that already exists. God entered into a relationship with us when he entered a human body in Bethlehem. God deepened this relationship when he entered the fullness of our brokenness, sin, and despair on Golgotha. God went even deeper into his relationship with us when he poured out his spirit upon all flesh all hearts at Pentecost. I mean, is this not the gospel, my friends? The very good news that we're invited to place our faith in and to proclaim with joy that because of Jesus Christ, there no longer is any chasm between us and God. 
that we really truly do have union with God. But most of us don't believe our own gospel. (laughs) Most of us expend most of our spiritual energy in pursuit of the thing that we already have. We seek a love that's already fully ours, a grace that we have already received. Paul says it elsewhere. Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have already received from God? We don't need to acquire union with God. We just need to learn how to live from our union with God. My friends, <laughs> when it comes down to it, what St. Paul is saying to you this morning is that you are enough. You are enough. You are enough for God. You are enough for each person in this room. The best thing about St. Paul's Episcopal Church Beloit It's not our buildings or our sermons or our liturgy or our potlucks or all of the delicious key lime pie even, if you can believe that. The best thing about St. Paul's Episcopal Church Beloit is you. It's you. And when I say this, I don't mean that the best thing about St. Paul's is what you can do, what you can give. The best thing about St. Paul's is who you are as a people, as individuals. My friends, St. Paul's invitation to us, all of us this morning, is for us to be authentically and uniquely ourselves with one another. And the best thing that we can offer to everyone who walks through those red doors is the space and the permission for them to be themselves as well. This, this is how we live from our union with God. This, this is how we can be God's temple to each other, how we can build each other up into God's temple, how we can encourage one another. Ultimately, Paul's invitation is for all of us to take holiness seriously. And if you didn't know the word holy, it literally means unique, authentic. We become holy whenever we stop trying to be something that we're not and we give ourselves permission to be precisely who we are. For Christ always meets us, my friends, right where we are, not where we wish ourselves to be. Therefore, encourage one another by being authentically and uniquely yourselves. And build each other up by giving each other the space to be authentically and uniquely yourselves, as indeed you are doing already.